Gentlemen, start your engine. Booster, go. Retro, go. Vital, we're go fly. Guidance, guidance, go. Atomic batteries to power. Surgeon, go fly. Econ, we're go fly. GNC, we're go. Delmu, go. Control, go fly. Procedures, go. Inco, go. FAO, we are go. I'm completely operational and all my circuits are functioning perfectly. Network, go. Recovery. Go! Capcom. We're go fly. Time circuit's on. Flux capacitor. Fluxing. Engine running. Launch control. This is Houston. We are go for launch. Very bad feeling about this. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Live from the bunker, it's Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Welcome everyone, live from the bunker, we are here in studio talking today with author, filmmaker, uh, amateur paleontologist, those of you who are Star Wars fans will recognize his name from the novelization of The Empire Strikes Back, Donald Glut joins us here, welcome sir. Ah, good to be here, hi. And uh, thanks very much for uh, for taking the time to talk with us, you've had... Uh, not to put a cliche into it, but you've had a very storied career, I guess you could say, um, with uh, not only with The Empire Strikes Back, but you've written a number of comic books, TV scripts, movie scripts, you've produced films, you've done fan films back before uh, fan films were a thing. Uh, when, they were, when they were still called home movies. That's right. Yes. Well, and and your uh, your 1969 Spider-Man apparently was was fairly well received. I understand. So. Oh, okay. yeah. I think that was the first one. I, as far as I know, um, that was the first amateur Spider-Man movie ever made. I mean, so there's a, you know possibly people made them before me, but it's the only one I ever heard of. And then there was somebody else. Uh, who made one approximately the same time or shortly after? Um, I was at a New York comic convention in 1973, and they ran his Spider-Man movie. And all I remember, uh, Craven the Hunter was the villain. And so uh, uh, there was one made around the same time, maybe a little bit. I don't think it was earlier, but I think it was you know maybe a little bit later. But yeah, that's what that's <laughs> that was my last amateur movie. <laughs> Now let's let's start with with the one that everybody's familiar with the novelization of the Empire Strikes Back. How did you get that assignment out of everybody oh, that could have written that? That's one of like three questions I hate being answered because <laughs> I've, answered, I've answered it so many times, uh, and it's the answer comes out like you ever go see you know uh, that the Lincoln the Abraham Lincoln robot at Disneyland. And it says the same thing over and over and over. All right, Great right. moments with Mr. Lincoln. That's what it is. It was. It was just a simple thing. They just. They asked me to do it, and they made me an offer, and and I did it. And I had a I had a friend uh, who's Craig Miller, uh, who was working uh, at, at Lucas offices at that point at that time, and he knew that they were looking for an author, and uh, he was trying to get one of his friends the gig, and I was one of his friends, and so he they. He submitted some of my work, and uh, they liked it. And uh, they made they called me up, made me an offer, and took me out to lunch. And you know, in this business, you never refuse a lunch. I didn't know if I was going to get the job or not, but you never refuse a free lunch. And so I, I figured if I didn't get the job, I would at least get a good meal that day. And so they made me the offer, and I took it, and that was it. 
Now, what were the challenges to writing the book based on the script? Because a lot of times you'll get into a novelization and there are elements. Uh, Star Trek II was a good example of this. Star Trek III, another one, uh, where you've got uh, pieces of the book that don't match what ends up being in the movie. And I know there's a process, there's a time, uh, time period involved where you have to work on the book based on whichever version of the script that's current at the time. Yeah, right, especially the ending. The ending kept changing, you know, like on a weekly basis. And I knew what the ending was uh, from the very get-go, but I couldn't write the ending. I had to write the fake pages, you know, based on... I had to write the ending based on the fake pages they kept giving me because they were so paranoid about anybody finding out the great revelation at the end <laughs> that um, they kept it a secret. It was, it was, it was really, it was not a pleasant experience, uh, you know. And uh, I had friends who kept begging me and trying to bribe me to tell the ending, and, all, and I was so glad to finally finish it and get that script out of my house because <laughs> they told me if uh, I told anybody the ending or if I showed anyone the script, they had ways of finding out, and you know, they it was like. The sort of Damocles hanging over my head the whole time, I and I just couldn't wait to get rid of that script. And, and you know, I didn't copy it, I didn't circulate it, I didn't show it to anybody, and um, and that was it. It was it was not a. a <laughs> I've had a lot more happy experiences writing than writing that. <laughs> but you're right. Uh, the you know, and try an author of a novel, you know. It's different than writing a screenplay or a comic book story. You uh, you try to get in the characters' heads and you try to explain things. And and, and they didn't. I, the first draft of the book I did, I did that, and they didn't like it. They wanted it to be more of a pulp magazine style. You know, Luke walked in a room. He sat down. You know, he pulled out his gun. You know, he fired. You know, that sort of thing. That right. Perry Mason writing. And uh, so I did three complete drafts of that. Uh, adding up total, six about six weeks uh, it took to write all three drafts combined on a typewriter. <laughs> I don't know if anybody listening to this knows what a typewriter is, <laughs> but it was way before word processing or anything, or even it wasn't even a Selectric, which had a correcting ribbon on it. This was in the days of liquid paper and crossouts oh, and all that sort of yes. thing. Yes. So uh, I was. It was a. It was a time consuming. It was a hectic job, you know. And I'm not a Star Wars fan, so that made it, you know, it wasn't like I was having a, a lot of fun playing with these characters. I mean, I, I just don't, I'm not, I'm not a, I don't particularly like the Star Wars movies, and they're always writing that novel, you know. That's, that's interesting, because now, are you not a particular fan of Star Wars in particular, or science fiction in general? Because you've done a lot in the genre. In particular, um, you know, uh I just, I just think it's, you know, I don't see it. It sort of became this thing that everybody worships now, and uh, I just, it just never pushed the buttons on me. I, I saw in it uh, a lot of cliches that I'd seen earlier, you know, in old movie serials and things. Uh, I thought the acting, with the exception of Peter Cushing and James Earl Jones, was was pretty bad in that first movie. I thought the dialogue was pretty bad, um, clunky, and um, you know, I just. I didn't, I didn't feel satisfied when it was over because, you know, in a heroic adventure, uh, you know, like let's take the adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone. 
you, you're satisfied because there's the ending where there's a one-on-one confrontation between Robin Hood and Sir Guy. It's a big sword fight, and then Robin Hood kills him, and that's the ending. But in Star Wars, the uh, there's no real ending. It just he goes spinning off into space, and people say, well, yes, it's, but it's like a serial. But no, it's not like a serial because in the serial, it's the hero who you think dies, not the villain. And you don't have to wait two or three years or however many years it was to see how the the solution to the cliffhanger is. It you come in next week. So so to me, and, and I also had a hard time. Uh, I didn't really know who the hero was in that movie. I mean, Luke was so wishy-washy, and Han was so cynical, and and I didn't particularly like Leia. Um, I just I didn't like the characters, and I keep asking myself, what do those stormtroopers do on their day off? You know, <laughs> they all they do is run through corridors, you know, in those uniforms. That's all they do. So <laughs> I've never been a Star Wars fan. So, but you are a fan of dinosaurs. This is something that's been uh, a big thing for you for for a long time. How did you get started in that? Well, I uh, as a little kid, a bunch of things happened. Um, my mother, when I was you know like four years old or five years old, took we went to the Field Museum in Chicago where we were living, and I you know I saw those big skeletons and and I was very intrigued by. So a, a skeleton of a fossil sloth, giant ground sloth from Argentina that was still embedded in the rock matrix, and I couldn't really tell where the bones started and the and where the bones left off and the the matrix started, you know, and that was very intriguing to me. And then around that same time, I got I got introduced to the word dinosaur um, through comic books and movies and uh, Tom Corbett's Space Cadet had dinosaurs on it for a while. Uh, and so, uh, in 1953, I guess it was, uh, a couple things happened uh, that were had a profound impact on me. One was um, the movie The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms came out uh, with the Ray Harryhausen effects, and the other was Joe Kubert's Tor came out, the comic book. Right. And bo- both of those things just, um, you know, just had the <laughs> a tremendous effect on me. And uh, I, I've loved dinosaurs ever since. And then as I got older uh, and started to read books in the library and continue to go to the Field Museum, I realized to me that the scientific nonfiction knowledge I was getting, the information I was getting, was a lot more exciting than the movies and the comic books and things were. So, I mean, it just, again, kind of a natural evolution of things. Now, what are you doing with the with the paleontology now? Because you've done a number of lectures, you've written a number of dinosaur books. Uh, I've written a lot of dinosaur books. Uh, I wrote a whole series of dinosaur encyclopedias that went eight volumes, which was a, a pretty technical uh, project for what I guess was, I don't know if you would call it a popular, but I don't know what you would call it, actually, but it was one of those things I felt like doing, and I, I wanted to do it my, my way. And I stopped writing those a few years ago. They were just not time or cost effective anymore. In fact, they never were. But uh, I'm I, I'm continuing that passion by I'm a volunteer fossil preparator at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. So every day on Thursday, I go down to the Natural History Museum and I go in the Dino Lab and I work on 
dinosaur bones, you know, extracting them from rock and, uh, you know, repairing them and doing all sorts of things. And it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a fun, relaxing way to spend one day of the week. Now, you talk about not being a fan of the Star Wars films. When you, when you go in to see the movies like Jurassic Park or Jurassic World or, or things like that, as, as an amateur paleontologist, what, what do those films do for you? Or do they? Well, I, I, I love those movies. There's a lot of scientific inaccuracies in them, you know, which I have to sort of bite the bullet. I keep telling myself, it's not a, it's not a scientific educational documentary I'm watching. This is a monster movie. And I love Godzilla, and I love decent 20, Ray Harryhausen's films, but those are, these are fantasy movies. These are science fiction movies. And once I get beyond that, I... I I, I think they're great. I even like the old, freaky, cheap ones they were making, you know, decades ago. Uh, in fact, sometimes I like them because they're so clunky and cheap-looking. But um, I, uh, I have no problem with the movies at all, unless they, unless they purport to be accurate. I did have a, I did have a, dare I say, a bone to pick with the first <laughs> Jurassic Park movie when they started calling. There's a, a whole group of dinosaurs called dromaeosaurs. And uh, Velociraptor is one of those. And uh, when they started calling those raptors, uh, ra- a raptor is a bird. It's a particular kind of bird of prey. And everybody jumped on the bandwagon. And suddenly, anything that's like a s- small carnivorous dinosaur now that people call a raptor, and it's, and some of them have nothing to do with dromaeosaurs. Some 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 are completely different groups and families and things. But Spielberg took that word and he made a household word of it, which now even scientists now, just to be understood by the public and to sort of fit in with the group, with the, with, with the, with the crowds, are calling those uh, dromaeosaurs raptors. And it's the same uh, problem I had when, uh, in the Star Wars films, they started calling robots droids, which is short for android. And an android is not a robot. But now everybody, you know, they've taken, they've, distorted a word and made it part of the, the common usage. So I have a problem with that, but um, otherwise I love, I love the Jurassic Park movies. Now, as a, as a writer, you, you've, you've looked at a lot of different uh, uh, mediums. You know, you've written novels and you've written comic books and movies and TV. Is there a particular medium that you like to work in more than others? Is there, is there something, because you've made the dinosaur movies, you've written the encyclopedias, you've written... Uh, you've written fiction about uh, you know you've done dinosaur films. Is, is there a is there a, a medium that you like to work in more than others, or is it just yeah? That's an interesting question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. Um, uh, I really like enjoy most writing film scripts. Um, uh, I don't like writing novels. Write, novels to me are kind of a chore, and sometimes difficult to write, so I don't particularly like writing novels. But I've written quite a few of them, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'd I rather write a film script, because a film script you don't have to make so literary, for one thing, and, and a lot of the things that you would be describing in a novel, uh, you leave up to the director and the actors uh, to fill in that information. And a lot of it's made up on the spot. I've been writing comic. You know, I, I used to write comic books, 
And I've been writing comic books again. I, I haven't written comic books since the, since the 1980s, and, and not regularly since the 1970s. But I had the opportunity to, to write for um, the Creeps magazine, which is like a new version, an homage or um, uh, a tribute to whatever you want to call it. Some people would say a ripoff, but I, I, I wouldn't call it that. Um, but it's a very close imitation, let's put it that way, um, of the old creepy and eerie uh, Warren magazines. And I've written about 20 stories for them already. They have enough stories now. Uh, of mine that I don't have to write anymore for the next couple of years. Um, but but I enjoy writing them. I'm having a good time writing them. And I think they're some of my best comic book uh, work is what I'm turning out for the, the Creeps magazine now. Now, is that... Uh, are, you, are you seeing now with, with the revival online of a lot of magazines, uh, online publications and whatnot, uh, are you finding that there's a market for... Uh, the horror uh, comic online comic books online graphic novels and and short stories and that sort of thing is is horror doing as well or better than other genres or is it, is it just it's it doesn't matter what the genre is online seems to be a good market but the other part of that question is is there is there a profit in it? Is this something that you're just doing for fun, or is there you know has has somebody well, finally cracked I'm getting that paid for it. <laughs> You know, uh, uh, I wouldn't be doing these for free, but uh, yeah, so I am getting paid, but you know, for the creep stories. But I, you know, to be honest with you, I have no idea, idea really what's online as far as publications go. I don't like reading on a computer screen. I don't like watching movies on a computer screen. I like to watch a movie in my in my den with the television on, you know, and have a big bowl of popcorn and that kind of thing. And when I read something, I like it. I like hard copies. I like to have hold the book in my hand or a magazine when you turn the pages. And so I don't read. I don't read anything online except if I'm looking up some information, uh, you know, like a website or something, and I need some information on something I'm writing about, uh, or you know, checking my email or my Facebook pages, that kind of thing. But I don't. I, I just don't. I'm just not part of that generation. I don't. I'm, I don't want to watch a movie on my my phone. Uh, I don't. I don't have an iPad. I don't have a smartphone. I don't want to take my work with me. So if I'm at a party or something, I don't want to sit there with everybody else sitting there in the corner looking at the, the looking at their phones. And I, I have to get away from that. I have to get a, you know separate myself from that. Right. Uh, so I don't know. I, I can't really answer that question. Uh, I think the creeps is is popular because uh, people miss that kind of story. You know, the the old Warren magazines are really kind of a, an offshoot of the old EC comic books, the pre-code horror comics, and that's what we're doing. You know, we're doing those kinds of stories with the, mostly with a surprise ending and with, you know, vampires and werewolves and dead bodies and zombies and, you know, that kind of thing. Now, uh, I, I ran across uh, an article earlier this week. Alterna Comics has just announced a plan to start publishing uh, their, uh, some of their comic books on the old newsprint paper, uh, like oh, comic books used to be doing. And you mentioned the pulps, and you mentioned the you know the early you know the early very simple adventure type of stories, you know, and and I'm wondering if there's you know that nostalgia factor 
as a selling point now because you, you you know with all of the reboots and the remakes and and the revisitations of of older older stories could we see a resurgence in the pulps uh maybe maybe not necessarily the actual books themselves the material but the content the types of stories that were told back then well that's another interesting question because um a friend of mine named Bill Cunningham, who has a company called Pulp 2.0 Press, is doing exactly what you're saying. He's not printing it on, you know, the the newsprint that falls apart in a few years in your hands uh, that crumbles away. But uh, he's publishing my New Adventures of Frankenstein series of novels, of which one of them, which is, one of them is is the Tales of Frankenstein short story collection. And... uh, He's doing everything from pulp-style adventure stories to, to comics, and he's got a pretty good operation going there. Uh, Bill Cunningham, he's on Facebook. You can you know check out his, what he does. But I don't know if it's, you said nostalgia. I don't know. A lot of it, you know, to be nostalgic about something, you have to have experienced it. I mean, you can't be, like you and I can't be nostalgic about dime novels because we weren't alive when they came out. <laughs> you, you, a nostalgia, nostalgia has to have some emotional connection with something I think you've already seen before. So uh, I think a lot of it has to do with just the fact that these characters and some of these old stories are just really good, and there's a lot of merit, there's a lot of value in them, and and that's why they're bringing a lot of those back, because um, for a whole new audience, I mean, a lot of the stuff that's out now is just junk. Uh, You know, I, you know, I don't... I haven't read comics since the 80s, I think it was, that I stopped. Or maybe, no, maybe the 90s, I, I guess, is, is when I stopped. Um, that's but, that's when um, a lot of people stopped. <laughs> well, I, you know, you mentioned pulp paper, too, a newsprint. Um, I think I stopped around the time they went to the slick paper, yeah. and they didn't look like comic books anymore. And I sat there reading. I, I, I remember I was, a couple things. I was, reading, I was trying to keep up my collection of Superman, because I had almost every issue from number one. Uh, to the president, and I said, you know, and then they, with the multiple covers and all these con jobs, they give you to buy more, you know, and the whole issue was nothing but Superman floating in midair talking to somebody. That was it. That was the whole issue, and it was like, you know, it, was, it wasn't 12 cents anymore. It was like a few dollars, and I sat there, and I said, you know, I buying all these things reading things I don't enjoy anymore, spending all this money, taking all my time up for the same reason that is it's like the plague of all collectors. I've got the complete set. I don't want to break the set now. I don't. I, I, it would be criminal to stop now. And I stopped to think. I said, what will happen if I don't buy that next issue of Spider-Man or if I don't buy that next issue of Fangoria? I've got them all, but I'm really not enjoying this. I'd rather be doing something else. But I'm sort of obligated to read them because I paid the money for them. And I said, well, what's going to happen if I don't buy that next issue? I'm not going to die, no. Nobody's going to put me in jail, no. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, go to the poor. Anyway, so the next month when all the things came out, I just didn't buy any of them. And my life suddenly took off in a whole new direction. And... uh, I'm glad of it. I had time to do things I would normally not have had time to do, and I had extra money in my wallet to do those things. So that's when I stopped. 
Now, you mentioned The Tales of Frankenstein. That is the project that you're currently working on, a film version of that. And uh, for those of you who have been paying attention, we did post earlier this week uh, an interview specifically about that. You can read over at SciFiForMe.com. And, uh, Donald, where where can people find you online? You mentioned you have a Facebook. You also have a website, I, I'm assuming, yes? Yeah, I, I've got, I'm, I'm easy to find. Um uh, I, I have two Facebook pages, my personal one and uh, my fan page. Uh, they're probably both easy to find. I reached my, my 5,000 limit, though. So if anybody who knows me, in fact, uh, sends me a friend request and it gets rejected, I just I reach my limit, so, so you know that okay. in advance. But, but Facebook keeps whittling down at 5,000 down to 4,998.99, so I think they're jettisoning people that turn out to be phonies or, you know, problems or whatever. So it's not always at 5,000, but it's usually at 5,000. And uh, I have a website, which is, I have four websites, actually. One is uh, just my name, DonaldFGlute.com. Another is uh, FrontlineFilms.com, which is my old film company. Um, Another one is DonGluteSDinosaurs.com. So if you like dinosaurs and sexy er sexy girls, (laughs) <laughs> go to that one and then there's a whole website devoted to my amateur movies that somebody set up for me and it's called i was a teenage movie maker and i don't know the address is extremely long and i don't know what it is by heart but if you just do a google search i was a teenage movie maker uh it'll turn up it'll turn up pretty close to the top all right and we will link to all of those donald Gloop, thank you very much for your time yeah they all link to each other so if you can find one you can you know they'll uh, they'll take you to, to the next one that you might want to see okay all right and the current project tales of frankenstein it is uh currently uh wrapping up over on indiegogo.com we also have a link to that and you can find other podcasts here on Sci-Fi for Me Radio and, of course, the latest news at SciFiForMe.com. That's going to do it here on uh, this episode of Live from the Bunker. My guest, Donald F. Lute, thank you very much for your time, sir. Thank you. And Thanks for pronouncing my name correctly. Well, I, I do try to get at least one thing right every show. All right, uh, that's going to do it for us. Thanks very much, folks, for listening, and we will be back with another episode soon. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio, copyright 2017, by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. And remember, no matter where you go, there you are.